Thank you, Vince. Good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. I think we're recovering from the holiday yet. Yeah? A little bit? Well, we're in 1 Thessalonians tonight, so if you have your Bibles, why don't we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day of the Lord. Uh, we could call this day of the Lord part 1, because it kind of goes, the theme kind of extends through verse 11 here. But uh, we're going to get started here, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 tonight, the day of the Lord. So let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Lord, again, we thank you for a warm place to meet. Thank you for each one that's able to come out tonight. Pray to you bless the ongoing ministries, uh, Awana youth group all happening at this hour as well. So uh, thank you for all those who teach, who help. Uh, thank you for each one that's uh, here to hear the word of God tonight. Pray that you administer to our hearts as we study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, you note uh, the outline overhead. And we have worked our way down here. The theme, of course, is the day of Christ. Christ coming for the church, mentioned in every chapter. And uh, we are in this section here, the day of the Lord. Like I said, it extends through verse 11. We'll just look at the first five verses here tonight. The uh, Thessalonians, they got saved, and they got saved expecting the Lord to come very soon, right? And we saw that in chapter 1. They were turned from idols to to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven. And so they're, they're waiting. They're expecting Christ to come. Now what happens? Shortly after that, some of their group dies. And they're saying, "Uh uh-oh, those people who died, what about them? Are they going to be left behind? Are they going to miss out on the rapture when Christ comes? We're going to go. They were expecting that. What about these poor people who have died? Um, And Paul says, nope, they're not going to be left out. Uh, They're going to be caught up first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. So he dealt with that at the end of chapter 4. The clearest passage we have in the New Testament on the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Well, there was another issue, and that is the issue of the timing of the rapture and how it relates to the coming day of the Lord judgment. They really uh, knew this, it would seem, but he's reaffirming, and uh, we will see this as we work through our text here tonight. But uh, let me tell you what I'm going to tell you before I tell you, Okay. Uh, let's see if we got this here. Nope, I guess I don't have that up there for some reason. That second slide's not showing, so that's okay. Anyway, what I'm going to tell you is the rapture comes first and then the day of the Lord. <laughs> I was going to diagram it for you. Uh, so anyway, uh, note uh, verses 1 and 2. Why don't we have somebody read that? Verses 1 and 2. Who wants to read that for us? Verses 1 and 2. Yeah, Jeff? Okay, thank you. Uh, Note, uh, as we start here in verse 1, the word but. It's an important word here. And it's actually a a Greek phrase, peride, in comparison to just de. Like we have another but here, right? Down here in verse 4. But you, brethren, that's just de. This is peride. And whenever Paul uses this, very consistently, he's changing subjects. For example, in the book of 1 Corinthians... He has all these different subjects he's dealing with. And when he introduces a new one, peride. That's the word he uses. But he's transitioning to a new subject. And so that's very important. We've just been talking about what in chapter 4? The rapture of the church. 
Now he's going to talk about a different subject related to the day of the Lord. And so that is very significant. This is a transition word, if you will. Let's see. Are all my slides gone now? No. Here we go. Thanks. <laughs> uh, the transition word, but in the Greek, as I say, is a prepositional phrase, peridea. Uh Paul commonly uses this phrase to introduce a new subject. Uh, this underscores that there is a distinction uh, from the rapture subject just covered in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the day of the Lord subject, he is now going to cover in 1 Thessalonians 5. So that, that, that word is a transitional word. And that's significant in your theology because uh, some people want to, you know, kind of tie the rapture into the day of the Lord, put it within that context of the day of the Lord. We're saying, no, it happens before. And I think he's got the order here. Correct. First Thessalonians 4, the rapture first, and then the day of the Lord. But notice what he says here. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, uh, this is found three times in the scriptures, this phrase, the times and seasons. And uh, we have it here, but then we also have it, uh, well, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Daniel 2.22 says he reveals the, the deep and secret things. Uh, what we know is what we've been told and what God has told us is that we don't know the timing of the last days. And that's really what we're talking about here. Um, this uh, phrase, times and seasons, really refers to the, uh, the uh, times. Uh, the word is uh, times is uh, chronos, from which we get our word chronology. It refers to chronological time periods. And so, you know, in terms of the, the periods and how long they are, we don't know. We don't know the times. We don't know the chronological times and, and the duration of the times. So he says, uh, concerning the times, and then he says, and the seasons. Uh, seasons refers to kinds of times, uh, turning points. Uh, turning points is the idea here in redemptive history. Uh, we don't know the duration of the time periods, and we don't know the specific turning points. So a lot we don't know. Um, and so he says, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. We don't know. Let's see if where we're at here. Uh, slide five. So I, maybe that's... Uh, okay, I think this is where I want to be. Uh, we know the rapture comes first and then follows the day of the Lord's judgment, but the precise timing for this unfolding is unknown. The Thessalonians already knew this, and so there was no need for Paul to educate them on this. However, he does review what they already knew. The emphasis at this point is on exhortation, not new information. So he's telling them, you know perfectly, uh, there's no need for me to write to you. Uh, you know that the day of the Lord is going to come unexpected. We don't know when it's coming. It's coming unexpected. And, and that's where he goes in verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly. They knew this accurately, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, this uh, Day of the Lord theme is a major mega theme in the Scriptures, Old Testament as well as New Testament. Uh, we have it all over the place, and, of course, in the New Testament, a large portion of the book of Revelation is really dealing with what we call the Day of the Lord. So, um, the Day of the Lord is, as it on its face appears, the Day of the Lord is all about the Lord's sovereign authority. It's a day when, it's a time when God intervenes to, to demonstrate his lordship. I've got several slides here, so let's, uh, 
take a look at here. The day of the Lord is a phrase that denotes God's open intervention into the affairs of this world whereby he demonstrates his lordship. There were various occasions in the Old Testament in which God intervened in this way, demonstrating his lordship. All of those historical occasions were a little foretaste of the coming eschatological, the last, the last days, the eschatological day of the Lord, in which God will demonstrate his lordship in an unprecedented way. So we have various interventions of the day of the Lord back in the Old Testament, but really they're kind of precursors uh, to what is to come. <clears throat> there are historical occasions, as I say, of the day of the Lord interventions as found in the Old Testament. And then there is the ultimate last day's eschatological day of the Lord, uh, future things, eschatological future uh, day of the Lord, which uh, the historical occasions all pointed to as a harbinger. They all pointed, they were a foretaste, but this is really the ultimate climax. Often in the same context, we see both of these realities side by side. So, uh, note this here. Uh, the historical day of the Lord in these references, Isaiah 13, 6, for example, but then the eschatological day of the Lord, in just a few verses later in verses, verse 9, and so forth. Historical, Joel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, so... In close context, we have both historical emphasis that happened in the Old Testament, a kind of a, a, a forerunner, a preview, if you will, a little taste of it, and then we have the, the distant complete. Um, one thing we want to note here is the scope of the last day's day of the Lord. None of the historical days of the Lord involve God's judgment of all the nations. This has never happened yet. However, in the last days, in the eschatological day of the Lord, God will judge all nations as seen in Isaiah 34, Obadiah 15, and so forth, the book of Revelation. That makes the eschatological day of the Lord unique. As such, the Old Testament passages often have both a near partial fulfillment and a distant complete fulfillment. So there's a, there's a more narrow picture, but then there's the broad picture where this sees ultimate complete fulfillment. So what I'm telling you is that this day of the Lord theme is a major theme in the scriptures. But it always refers to God's uh, direct divine intervention in judgment. And so uh, the day of the Lord, when he's talking about this, he's talking about this climactic time of judgment that will come upon the world. Okay, got one more slide here. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, there we go. Thanks. Uh, so here we are. We're in the church age. And uh, this is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. This is, this is 1 Thessalonians 4. And then the day of the Lord, what we commonly call the seven-year tribulation. And the climaxing in the second coming. And then the kingdom, the kingdom reign, eternal state. But the day of the Lord really has two phases to it. It has a judgment phase, what we call the night phase, and it has a day phase or, or the blessing phase. And so uh, really we're talking, this is the emphasis here, the day of the Lord begins with this judgment phase, uh, the tribulation period. So that's what we're talking about. Um, notice uh, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. How do thieves in the night come? Unannounced, right? You don't know they're coming. They, they don't call ahead. Uh, they don't leave hints. Uh, nope, they show up unexpectedly. They show up unexpectedly. 
uh, with no forewarning, uh, no indicators. And that's how the day of the Lord is going to come. It's not like you say, oh, well, we should have saw it coming. Uh, it's maybe one of these things. It's a good thing to kind of keep in mind as far as people say, well, we know it's coming. Well, we do know it's coming. You know how we know it's coming? Well, God has told us. <laughs> he has plainly told us it's coming. But in terms of uh, specific signs, if you're looking for a sign, it would be a hint. The closest thing we would have is what? What's that? Well, that's true. That is, that is the mega thing as far as the, the, end, the end of the church age is characterized by apostasy. What's that? Well, that's true. Uh, I mean, but that won't be a sign. I mean, we'll be out of here, right? Uh, I'm talking about the nation of Israel back in the land. Uh, Israel has to be back in the land in order for last day's prophecy to be fulfilled. So, you know, when they were out of the land, looking back now, it's kind of like, well, how can all these last day's prophecies that relate to Israel be fulfilled if Israel's not in the land? Well, they can't be. So when Israel became a nation reestablished again, that is kind of a major hint that the stage is being set. But still, we're not setting any date. We're we're not, we don't know. Uh, It comes as a thief in the night. Uh, what's going to trigger it? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment here. Uh, what officially triggers the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the day of the Lord, is not the rapture, but rather the signing of a seven-year covenant with Antichrist as stated in Daniel 9.27. So there could potentially be a gap between the rapture and the start of the day of the Lord. However, if there is a gap, it will undoubtedly be a very short one because a key reason for God removing his church will be so he can complete his program with Israel. And uh, I think that was true on the other end, too. I mean, when the Holy Spirit came, it came abruptly. And the direction changed from Israel to the church. And I think once the church leaves, it will abruptly go back to God working with Israel once again. Okay, Um, it comes as a a thief in the night. Uh, Like I say, uh, I've had thieves break in before. And when I went out in the morning and looked in the garage, I was surprised, right? <laughs> I didn't say, man, I thought he was going to come last night. No, I, I was completely shocked. Uh, comes as a thief in the night. Okay, any other thoughts here before we move on to verse 3? Yeah. When we talk about God moving the church so Okay, so the issue really relates to your question is the ministry of the Holy Spirit a- after the church is gone. Yeah, well, yeah. The, 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 the marking of the church yeah. Yeah. Well, I think... No, I think there is some distinctions there. The Holy Spirit is always omnipresent. I mean, the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, in all eras, the Holy Spirit is... Yeah, right. Well, I think the church is unique in that regard. But you have a couple of things. You know, you had spirit-filled prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, God did fill those prophets with his spirit and, and work through them. I think when those two witnesses come on the scene... And, uh, you know, they're able to breathe out fire against anybody who's coming. I mean, it's going, to be, it's going to be a worldwide witness. I mean, the whole world is going to witness them when they get killed, and they're going to celebrate it. You know, everybody's going to hate them. 
So I think they're going to have a worldwide ministry. So I think God's going to be working more directly in the time of the tribulation, uh, in more direct intervention way, where now uh, the Holy Spirit has come upon us so that we might be his witnesses. I mean, this is what God is doing in the church age right now. I think it's going to, there's more of a direct feel uh, during the tribulation period as far as what God will be doing. Yeah. Yep. During the tribulation period, believers are also, those who believe, they're also sealed. But they're sealed, I think, in a way. Well, yeah. Well, it is in reference to the 144,000 in particular. Uh, I don't know if we have a general statement as far as all believers during that time. I think there is a distinction between what we know as a sealing, you know, of the Holy Spirit and what, what they will experience. Um, I don't know that they will all have the Holy Spirit. I think those 144,000 are in a unique role, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, um, and they may be, you know, sealed with the Spirit there. But generally, I think there, there is still a distinction between what we know uh, in terms of, you know, baptism, being baptized into one body by the Spirit versus what's going to be in the tribulation period. Yeah, the 70 weeks. Yeah, I think we're kind of going back to the way it was before, uh, before the church age in terms of how the spirit will be working. You know what? I, I don't know. I don't see that. In fact, I think things are going to be so dramatic in the, in the 70th week of Daniel. I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of formal anything going on. <laughs> Probably still some, but uh, I think it's going to be, this is the God of heaven, the God of Israel, and, and what are we going to do with, this, with the truth of the Bible? And so um, I don't know that there's going to be a huge amount of like, should we go back to Judaism here? I think it's going to be, they're going to have the whole revelation of God here, too, as far as uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's my last question. Um, there will still be an opportunity outside of the 144,000 people who come to a saved Oh, the, the number is innumerable that gets saved. I really think the greatest amount of people are going to be saved are going to be saved in the tribulation period. As far as the whole of history, I think there's going to be more people saved in the tribulation period than have been saved all through history up to this point. They're innumerable, according to what we find in Re Revelation chapter 7 there. Um, so, chapter 5, chapter 7. So, there's going to be a huge amount of people turning to the Lord. I think we're sowing the seed that's going to come to fruition after we're gone. They're not paying a lot of attention now, but I think when things get rocking in the in day of the Lord, they will be. So, and yet there's going to be a small minority in comparison to the masses who, who are not going to listen either, which is always the case. Okay, yeah, Rob? With the Israel being back in the land. Yeah. Um, are they, you say, today, are they back in the land today? Yes or no, or are they still, are they getting back to? <laughs> it's interesting. I read an article on this very thing today. So <laughs> that's a great question. You know, there's really uh, two returns in, in the last day as far as related to the, the, you know, you have the global dispersion of the Jews. 
There's two returns according to Isaiah chapter 11. And the first one is in, in unbelief. That's where they are today. They have come from the whole world, and they're coming from the whole world, but they're in unbelief. I mean, there is a small, small remnant of Messianic Jews in Israel, but very, very small percentage. Most Jews are very secular. They're not even close to believers. They're, they're, they're in unbelief. At the second coming, as many will come to faith during that tribulation, and, and they will come back, God will bring them all back to the land, every last one of them at that point. That will be the second part of that restoration. So, I don't know, did that answer your question? Uh, the answer is, I think they are back in the land in fulfillment of prophecy in terms of, in unbelief, they are back in the land. And that has to be in place in order for last day's prophecy to be fully fulfilled. That's right. They're back there in unbelief. Yep, they're, they're, they're not back there in conversion yet at this point. Not for the most part. Uh, they're in unbelief. Yep. Which is a necessary part. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that will be completed at the second coming. I don't think it'll have full complete, completion until the second coming. And I think even in, you know, Zechariah chapter 13, there 8 and 9 points out that, you know, one-third of the Jews is going to perish in the land. But those that come through will be true believers. So I think there's going to be a great purging, even of the Jews, during that tribulation period. But... It's going to be a, a great coming to the Lord, too, as far as the Jews. But, but still many, there'll still be many that don't come as well. And I think that'll be true throughout the whole world. So here comes Christ. These Jews have been converted, somehow survived, hiding wherever. Now they will all be brought back. And all those who come into the land and come into the kingdom will be saved Jews. Yep. Okay, good discussion. Let's have somebody read verse 3. Who wants to read uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3? Yeah, Andrew? <clears throat> while, people, yeah, while people are saying they're deep in security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Okay. So he's saying it's going to come as a thief in the night. We don't know when it's coming, but here's how it's going to come. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Uh, it happens when they're saying peace and safety. Now, this is interesting here. Um, we live in the gap period. And uh, we know about the gap period here from Daniel 9, 26. Uh, three things define the gap period. Uh, after the 62 weeks, and he's talked about seven, 62 and seven makes for, this is not hard, 69, right? So after uh, the 69, you add there's seven weeks he talked about in, in verse 25. But after the 62 plus the seven, uh, this is what's going to happen. Messiah shall be cut off. When was the 69th week completed? You remember from our study going through the Gospels? It was completed at the uh, triumphal entry. That really marked the completion of the 69th week. Uh, this, is, this is your day. He says, and, and they, didn't under, they didn't understand it. This was the, the presentation, the official presentation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah King. And they, they did not appreciate it. They didn't, they didn't get it. 
Well, after that, I mean very shortly, within about a few days, after the, the fulfillment of the 62 weeks plus the 7, after the 69 weeks, number one, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Uh, this is the death of the Messiah. It, it happens in this gap period. This is, everything in this verse is happening in the gap period. Uh, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, when was the city of Jerusalem destroyed and the temple? 70 AD. So this is reaching forward. This happened, you know, a few days after the triumphal entry. Uh, now we have the destruction of the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD. But then he says one more thing. The end of it shall be with the flood. And three, till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Uh, let's go to the next slide here. C.I. <clears throat> Schofield says, literally till the end shall be war, desolations are determined. And then Fruchtenbaum says, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined for the remainder of the interval between the 69th seven and the 70th seven, the land would be characterized by war and its resulting condition would be desolation. I think he nails that. That's, that's what we're talking about, the gap period. So we have the, 70, the 69 weeks are completed, triumphal entry, and then there's a gap. We don't know how long this gap is exactly. But this entire gap period is characterized by war desolations. And then what happens? Well, we have a change. We have the 70th week of Daniel. You have ongoing war desolations. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many Jews for one week. And that's going to signal a change. They've known nothing but war desolations down through this whole church age during the gap period. But now all of a sudden, they enter into a seven-year covenant with Antichrist, who in effect is guaranteeing them peace, what they have long desired. And so um, I think this also uh, corresponds with um, Revelation 6, 1 and 2, the, the opening of the seals. Uh, the seal judgments. I mean, this is the beginning of the tribulation proper here in, in Revelation chapter 6. We have the scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. We've got the church age in chapters 2 and 3. And now we begin the tribulation proper. Well, how does it begin? Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. This is the beginning of it all. I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. What do we see? I looked and behold a white horse. A white horse. What does a white horse signify? Well, peace. Uh, I think this represents the Antichrist coming. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, given authority. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So that's the first seal. And then uh, as we think about this, let's see what I got here. My next slide. The brokered peace deal would seem to correspond to the first seal judgment of Revelation 6, 1 and 2, where we find Antichrist coming on a white horse, indicating he comes as a man of peace. But no sooner does he come on the scene than the second seal is opened in Revelation 6, 3 and 4, and peace is taken from the earth, with the result being much death. So we got this white horse coming on the scene first, which would seem to indicate good things. Yeah, but then, following immediately, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and the people should kill one another, 
and there was given him a great sword. I think this corresponds to what we're looking at here when they say peace and safety. Initially, peace and safety when the Antichrist comes on the scene. That's going to be the, the mantra. Oh, finally, we got peace and safety. We got a seven-year covenant. It's a firm covenant. The Jews are signing on to it. And uh, so they're saying peace and safety. But then sudden destruction. I think this refers to war breaking out like crazy, far and wide here. This, in my thinking, is very possibly when the Gog and Magog situation develops. Not dogmatic on the timing of that. But then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Now, really, the Greek here is uh, singular and has a definite article. In other words, as uh, a labor pain, uh, referring to the first birth pain, the first one, meaning there's more to follow. Uh, And as labor pains go, they increase in frequency and intensity as, as you go along. The language here of labor pains is the very same language used by Christ when speaking of the tribulation period in the, seven, the 70th week of Daniel, Matthew 24. Uh, for nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And so I think he's really talking here in, in this context here about the first half of the tribulation period. And it, it comes suddenly, it comes unexpected, just as in the middle of the night, the woman wakes up, uh-oh, I've got a labor pain. And it goes from there. And it says here, and they shall not escape. Uh, this will be a worldwide judgment, and there will be no escape. You know, you say, well, I'm going to get in my rocket ship and head off to the moon. Well, <laughs> no, you're not going to get away. Uh, you might try to run, but you can't hide. This will be sinners in the hands of an angry God. And uh, so this, these judgment pangs build, and uh, no one is going to be able to escape. However, there is a way of escape, and that's if you know Jesus Christ before it hits, right? I think this is where Revelation 3.10 comes in, uh, because he's talking to the Church of Philadelphia, which is applicable to all the churches. Uh, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, as he says at the end of the section there. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Uh, You have earth dwellers, which is a a technical term for unbelievers in the book of Revelation. But uh, these faithful believers will be kept from the hour which uh, will come upon the whole world. So that's the way of escape. But once it happens, there's no getting away here. There's, There's no avoiding Uh, this worldwide judgment, they shall not escape. And notice the pronouns here. When they say, peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He's not not talking about us. He's talking about they. He's talking about them, the unbelievers, the unbelieving world. And so that's who's going to experience this, not us as believers. Okay, um, all right, any other thoughts before we go on to verses 4 and 5 here? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yep, in Luke, yep, yep, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, the, the time of your visitation, and you did not know it, you know. That was it. This was the official presentation 
of, of Christ after all, his whole ministry. Now, here's the official presentation. Coming to Jerusalem, uh, in, prophetically. There, there are kings riding in on a donkey. And they missed it. They, they didn't appreciate it. Uh, I think that concluded the 69th week. And then we have this large gap here. We're living in the gap period right now. But, yeah. All right. Anything else? All right. Let's have somebody read verses 4 and 5 to finish out here. Who wants to read that for us? Verse, yeah, Vince? Yeah, 4 and 5, please. Okay, thank you. So notice uh, the word but is a contrast word here. Uh, it's just the, the, uh, the word de, and it mean, it's, uh, it's contrasting. Notice he's just been talking about they and them, as we noted in verse 3. But here all the way through, now he's talking about you and we. He's talking to the believers. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Here he's talking about uh, the sphere, or the, or the realm of darkness. He's talking about spiritual, a spiritual reality. Uh, we are not in darkness. Um, the realm of darkness is headed up by Satan. And this is the realm that is destined to experience God's judgment. Uh, you are not in darkness. We're not in darkness. Uh, we're in the light. You, brethren, are not in darkness. We're, we're children of the light. And he says, so that this day should overtake you as a thief... It's not going to overtake you. You know why? You're going to be removed so it doesn't overtake you. Uh, that's the idea here. The day, uh, this day, the day of the Lord judgment will not overtake us as believers. For we will not be, for we will be in glory at the time of the rapture. Before judgment falls, God takes his people out of harm's way. This is a way of saying that God's judgment will not fall on the enlightened. Uh, those that are of the light. Um, you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. It won't. It's going to overtake the world. They're going to be caught and they will not escape. But it's, that's not going to happen to us. And then he continues, verse 5, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. So again, we have a contrast of spheres between light and darkness and uh, notice we also have a, a contrast of natures. You are sons of light. We're in the light, and we are of the light. Really referring to our nature. We're, we're in the sphere of light, and we are sons of light, sons of the day. So the idea of son of is that which we are identified with, that which we are characterized with. And in regeneration, we go from darkness to light. And we become children, we were children of darkness, now we're children of the light. And Paul says this uh, different places. Uh, Jesus talked about it too, John 12, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. That's who we are. Ephesians 5, 8. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So this is what defines us now. We are, we are sons of light and sons of the day. Uh, kind of like a double emphasis here. Sons of the light are sons of the day. And uh, perhaps also uh, depicting our destiny as those who are of the day. Uh, we will experience uh, the kingdom. Um, we've been transferred into the kingdom as believers. 
he has delivered us from the power of darkness uh, and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's, that's the realm of light. And this is our position, by the way. We're not in the kingdom yet physically, just like we're not in heaven yet, even though we're seated <laughs> with the, in heavenly places, but we're not there yet. Um, so notice, uh, he continues here, and he really reinforces what he has just said. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Uh, so we are not of the sphere uh, of darkness, and we're not of the nature of darkness. Uh, we are not of night, nor of the darkness. As believers, we belong to a different sphere, and we have a different nature. Those in darkness who belong to the dark side face the prospect of the dark day of the Lord's judgment. Those in the light who are of the day will not be overtaken by God's judgment. Instead, we are headed for the light of God's uh, kingdom to come. Let's see here. I've got another slide here. Notice the contrast all the way through here. We've got unbelievers and we've got believers. Unbelievers, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Overtakes them. Uh, know accurately about the day of the Lord. We, we know what's coming. Uh, they say peace and safety. Uh, we are not in darkness. Sudden destruction comes upon them. The day of the Lord will not overtake us as a thief. They shall not escape. Sons of the light, day not of the night, nor of the darkness. Uh, so makes a contrast all the way through here in terms of uh, the believers and the unbelievers. Everyone is in one camp or the other. Either we are of the light or we are of the darkness. The rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time, but once it does happen, the day of the Lord's judgment will quickly segue into place. The world doesn't believe it and is, in fact, blinded to it, but as believers, we see it and are here to warn unbelievers that they need to get right with God because Judgment Day is on the way. I mean, we are here proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that people can be saved. And another thing we are doing is warning the world that Judgment Day is on the way. Uh, Acts 17. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Um, there was a certain amount of ignorance that God let slide before. But now after the resurrection of Christ, uh, he's saying, nope, uh, I'm demanding that you repent and, and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And the reason is because he has appointed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So people need to come to repentance because judgment day is coming. They need to get right with God while they still have the opportunity. The sequence is first the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then the day of the Lord which follows, 1 Thessalonians 5. The day of the Lord judgment comes without any forewarning, and the fact that believers will not be overtaken by it necessitates their removal prior to it. I mean, once the day of the Lord comes, there's no escaping. The way you escape is by being taken out in the rapture. Uh, but apart from that, there, there is no escaping. So here's where we are. Uh, we are in the church age, and that's part of the gap period. After the, after the cross takes place in the gap period, you, know, you have the triumphal entry right before it, but then you have the cross, and then we live in the church age. And this, that's part of the gap period. And during this gap period, uh, you have the destruction of the temple, 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, and, and Israel has had a constant ongoing wars and desolation. 
Even today, you've got all these little surrounding nations that are at war with Israel and anti-Semitism picking up all over the world. It just goes on and on. And that will be in place. We have the rapture. We're taken out. And then there's going to be a seven-year covenant uh, between Antichrist and Israel. And everybody's going to say, oh, wow, finally, finally peace and safety. And that will suddenly come to an end. And great tribulation will come upon the entire world. Uh, Of course, that will climax the second coming of Jesus Christ, who comes to set up his millennial reign, comes with us, his bride, and uh, will reign on earth for a thousand years, which then segues into the eternal state. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? No? You know I always say, right? Perhaps tonight. We don't know when it's coming. Yep, Andrew? Yep. And then we find him later in this book, later part of the book, that he then expounds on that and is like teaching them more and more about it. So this is something that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. When I think about, I need to witness my coworker or witness my friends, I always think about it in the context of they're going to die in their sins as well. Right? Now, excluding this whole event. Mm-hmm. But what we see here as we study this is that we're also, we're supposed to be looking forward. It's not just for our rapture, but like, Saving, saving these people from this whole tribulation period that is coming after the rapture. And so it's just, it's kind of the study here is kind of putting this all into perspective of like, not only do we look for the coming of the Lord Jesus, but it's just to take us up, which mm-hmm. I've always, I, I haven't really thought of as, as, as the way that I should be, but I'm saying, like, it'll, I'll, if I die, it'll be fine. I'm not really looking for that because I know where I'm going anyway. But not only should I be looking for that, but I also should be in the context of judging the fall of Oh, for sure. Um, you know, I think Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He's warning, warning them. 120 years he's building this thing. You know, I'm sure after about 15 years, you think, this guy's crazy. <laughs> after 50 years, you say, it's never going to happen. 120 years is quite a long time to build a boat. <laughs> but then it started to rain, you know, after it got family on the ark and shut the ark up, God shut it up. It was, boy, didn't look so dumb then. So uh, I think we, we, as it was in the days of Noah, uh, we are warning uh, judgment is coming. I mean, they look at you like you're some kind of fanatic. I mean, like, you've got to be crazy to actually think that this is ha- going to happen. But uh, it'll happen sometime. We just don't know when, you know, the times and the seasons. Uh, it comes as a thief in the night. So we don't know. We're not setting any dates. And everybody who has set a date has been wrong. I mean, so we're, we're not doing that. And yet we know we're getting closer. We, we do see the day approaching, as it says in Hebrews. Um, but when? No dates. We're not setting any dates. But yeah, um, this is a big thing in the Scriptures, to warn the world, uh, to warn people. I mean, Noah was, in effect, doing that as he's building the ark. It was a constant sign of judgment is coming. And nobody listened hardly. I mean, his own kids got on, thankfully. 
<laughs> They're wise. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay. Very good. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Yep. Yep. And it fits. Antichrist means, you know, opposed, but also instead of. I mean, he is, he is a, a form of Christ to the world, but it's a false one. Yeah. You know, he's the Antichrist. Yep. All right. Yes. Tiffany. Right. Yep. I think the Church of Laodicea represents the apostate church. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, the Church of Philadelphia really represents the evangelistic church that's reaching out. And uh, so, but he says, uh, what the Spirit says, not only to the Church of Philadelphia, he says to all the churches. So I think there's an application to all the churches. He says that at the end of there, you know, uh, what is it, Revelation 3. Let me see if I can get there and show you what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, verse uh, 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each one of the messages, there's application to all the churches. It's not only to the Church of Philadelphia. So I think there's an application to all the churches. But those churches, there was a certain message, and they, they have a certain character, and there's a certain message to each one of them. But obviously, we know it was broader than just that local Church of Philadelphia because it didn't happen during that time. Right? I mean, the rapture didn't happen in those early days when John was still living and you know, when that church was still there, that local church. So I think there's an, a broad application here. He's bringing out certain things that relate to that church in terms of their character. But there's application for all of the churches. Yeah. That's a good question, though. That's a thoughtful question. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. So will that be more perhaps referring to individuals, to the faithful individual, or do you think it's as a universal church or a local church? You know, maybe I'm not asking this question right, but what I'm saying is even in this age, we will find churches that are in each one of those seven groups. Sure. Well, you know, he is speaking to the church at Philadelphia and what basically characterized them. You know, like he says there in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the... This is a persevering church. And he says because of this, they haven't apostatized, you know, proving that they are real, true believers. So then this promise is given to them. But then I would extrapolate that to, you know... What, whoever is a true believer, persevering. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and you get the same thing about the apostate church in, in Laodicea. I think, I think simultaneously in the last days, we've got a true church. When you think about the broad scope of the universal church, you've got the true church scattered out everywhere. But you've also got a huge mega false church that will be the bride of the Antichrist. 
And so you kind of got them side by side during these days. The true church will be taken out and the false church will be in league with the Antichrist, the, the, the woman that rides the beast. Yeah, so, yeah, that's good. Anyone else? Good questions. Okay, let's share some prayer requests. Do you have prayer sheets? Anybody need a prayer sheet here?